0: When I think about this report and, you know, where we can go with it, I think of so much potential of how we can break out of the box of what education typically looks like in the United States and kind of blow it out of the water and make it really exciting and a better model for everyone.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to Native Minnesota, a podcast about the Native American experience in Minnesota and beyond. I'm your host, Rebecca Crook Stratton, secretary treasurer of the shakopee Mdewakanton Sioux community. This podcast is a project of Understand Native Minnesota, a campaign focused on improving the narrative about Native Americans in Minnesota's public schools. Today I'm joined by Odea Wood Krueger. Odea is the author and principal investigator for our campaign's new research report called Restoring Our Place. It assesses what resources Minnesota educators are using to teach Native American subject matter, what is most helpful, what gaps exist, and what resources are still needed. Odea has been working in public education for the past 20 years, and her career has focused on making education better for all students, Native and non-Native. We had a great conversation talking about the interesting things she's learned during this research and her career more broadly. I hope you enjoy. Well, good afternoon. Uh, I'm here today with Odea Wood Kruger, uh, who is the principal on a report that was just released around education in Minnesota. Uh, I'm really excited to visit with you today, and thank you so much for being on our podcast. Well,
0: thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to have worked on this project with you and of course to be here today
1: Well, thank you so much i, I guess let's just start out and can you tell us a little bit about your background and you know where did you grow up and and how did you uh come to where you are today oh gosh that's a that might <laughs> that- be a really long story. <laughs>
0: So uh, born and raised in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, Um, I was, you know, did all of my schooling there, my undergrad, Bachelor of Education. And then I was thinking about this today, it's been 20 years since I left Saskatchewan and I started my foray into, you know, into American education. And um, so I've sort of been hopscotched around the U.S., I did a little stint in um, British Columbia teaching, but I've been here in Minnesota since 2008. live in Minneapolis, about a mile from George Floyd Square with my husband. And, um, you know, my mom says I've been a teacher all of my life. So education has been part of my life. I feel like I'm a lifelong learner. And so... Um, Yeah, I'm Métis from Saskatchewan, came down here um, because I met my husband in in graduate school, and it was easier for me to move down here than it was for him to move to Canada. And a lot of folks joke, they're like, why did you move down here? And uh, I love Minnesota. It really feels like home now. And um, yeah, I, I would say I'm a public school advocate, even though I'm not currently working in public schools, but really... Love to think of this project as a way to support my continued love for education for everyone and public education.
1: Tell me a little bit about your educational background and, you know, where did you go to school and, and what was it like? You know, we we talk about and we'll get more into the, the report, but, uh, you know, did you have more access in Canada to uh, information about Native peoples and... Yeah, it was funny. So
0: um, a few years ago, pre-pandemic, we had this amazing exhibit at uh, MIA, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and Christy Belcourt, a Métis artist, was down and uh, she was doing an art project. And I was speaking with her and, you know, we were chuckling and I was like, oh man, you're doing such great stuff in Canada. She goes, wow, that's funny because we think that you're doing such great stuff down here. And it really made me laugh about how, you know, sort of the grass is always greener on the other side. And so when I initially came down here to the U.S., I felt like there were so many educational opportunities. Um, I came down and I was doing graduate school at Wolfridge Environmental Learning Center. That's where I met my husband. We were graduate student naturalists together. And um, I just felt like the the opportunities to learn and do things down here were so much greater. And as I as I look at Canada now, like, I, as I said, I've been gone for for 20 years, aside from little, little visits. Um, I don't necessarily think we're doing a better job up there. Um, I think that the truth and reconciliation was a little performative. I do think there's more attention on Indigenous folks. I will say that I don't feel like my educational history in Canada was really great until I got to the University of Saskatchewan. And then I had just powerhouse instructors, Maria Campbell, who wrote the book Halfbreed, amazing, strong Métis woman, Janice Acus, Patricia Montour, who's the first Native lawyer, woman lawyer in, in the country. So I had all these really strong, powerful women teaching me. And so uh, when I came down here... Um, I ended up taking a master's of education from the University of Minnesota Duluth and it was a indigenous cohort and the students I was with were indigenous but none of our professors were and so it really felt like a bit of a bait and switch and so I recently um I recently started a master's of education at the University of Saskatchewan kind of seems silly to do a second one but it's a master's of indigenous land-based education and all my instructors are native and I get to learn off the land and it's really phenomenal. And so I get to see what could be, and that's really exciting. And um, I guess when I, when I think about this report and you know where we can go with it, I think of so much potential of how we can break out of the box of what education typically looks like in the United States and kind of blow it out of the water and make it really exciting and a better model for everyone.
1: What an amazing opportunity, Uh, indigenous, uh, whole indigenous faculty and and staff supporting that program. Uh, I think I might have to go to Canada.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm off to Yellowknife, Northwest Territories for two weeks this summer, and I've never been there. I'm going to be on the shore of Great Slave Lake And uh, I get to learn from Leanne Simpson, who's just this phenomenal author for folks who don't know who she is. And uh, then I get to take an indigenous research methodology class while being on the land with
1: elders. That sounds like like an amazing (laughs) opportunity. Oh, I love it. Um, So with all of your years of experience, uh, were there any findings in this report uh, or in the research that, that surprised you? So um, I
0: most recently, before consulting full time, I worked for Minneapolis Public Schools for nine years, and my job as a teacher on special assignment was to uh, create experiential learning opportunities for teachers, do professional development, write curriculum. So a lot of the things that we talk about in this report was literally my job and my life for nine years at MPS. And so I came to this report thinking... Oh gosh, you know, I want to know why why it was so hard to work with teachers all the time and why weren't the teachers doing these things? And I think um I want to say the the probably the biggest thing I I took away from this was how much it's changed me as I think about um my own experience working um from an indigenous lens. But um not not to take away any any responsibility for teachers, I also take away from this report that we just really haven't set people up for success. And so when we see this report, it's 617 folks responded. And I just think, all right, here are the people who really want to do better, right? I would say 99% of the people who responded want to do better. And they said, you know, we're doing the best we can with what we've got, but we don't have a lot. And we're kind of fumbling along and we wish we knew more and we really don't want to cause any more harm. And that was really, I guess it was kind of healing for me because I maybe had harbored a little bit of anger, like, why aren't they doing more and why aren't they working harder? And so for me, my key takeaway is that we're asking teachers to do a lot of things that we haven't set them up to be, to feel successful in doing. And that's a shame. Because as Native people, we never want people to be shamed or blamed or, you know, put made uncomfortable. And um, I, think, I think this is, I look at this as the potential for a great partnership. And as we move forward, who knows where we can go when we work together. And that's really what I hope we take away yeah. from this.
1: You commented just now um, about a teacher saying they don't want to do more harm. Um, that's you know an interesting uh, interesting thing to come out of, of the conversation because it there are a lot of um, curriculum and resources that actually probably do more harm and spread misinformation and so how do we you know look at going going back and undoing um, some of some of the harm that has been done through some of the resources and I think the the report gives us a, a pathway forward
0: certainly and i think as we look at curriculum developers and things like that they often have this fantastical or mystical idea of who native people are and so that's we end up with these resources that are either rife with trauma or a skewed historical lens or you know just blatantly wrong and so teachers are starting to become aware of like oh Whose lens are they are they teaching through and I feel that some teachers will inadvertently whitewash their curriculum for fear of causing that harm and so this this report really has the potential to support teachers who've always been in our corner so to speak but just unsure of how to do it in a respectful and and responsible way. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, I should probably give our listeners just a little bit of background on this report. Um, so this report is uh, one of the, the main goals of the Understand Native Minnesota project, uh, which is a, a campaign to you know, change the narrative in our K-12 through schools. Um, and this report is really going to be instrumental in the, the last phase of our campaign, which is going into grant making. Uh, to create resources whether it's curriculum resources or training opportunities um and so we will use some of the the lessons learned in this report to to guide it and uh the name of the report is restoring our place an analysis of american or of native american resources used in minnesota's classrooms and it's really got some great information um i think one of uh, one thing the report spells out is that teachers often don't know where to start so Um, You just started to touch on this. Why do you think navigating this and finding the good quality curriculum about Native Americans is difficult?
0: Well, I think it's tough because, one, um, while there are Native folks, Native professionals working in education, mainstream education isn't necessarily well-suited for Indigenous people. It is a um, pretty strict and regimented system. And I think when we think about curriculum at least here in the US, you know, aligning standards and, you know, goals and all of these very laid out formulaic ways in which we write curriculum doesn't really it's not suited for the way we traditionally learn or the way we feel comfortable learning. And so I think I think uh, mainstream curriculum companies have just sort of inserted themselves in Because there's a need for the curriculum, that boxed package type thing that we think of when we think of curriculum. And um, so there are native professionals who are creating this curriculum, but it's often something that they just do within their own circles. And so when I think of of a lack of curriculum, it may be an inability to spread that out to a wider space, it may be a lack of confidence that what they're sharing is valuable, right? We see that a lot amongst native professionals, and it may just be a lack of capacity. We, you know, native professionals in education are constantly fighting for 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 visibility, and so when when that's your your priority, you're often not able to be as creative and and generate these things like you normally would be able to. So when I think about a lack of curriculum, I think that it is the system at whole. I think it's a lack of capacity, but it also might be um, just the platform doesn't exist for us to to currently share it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so as part of the report, you include um, all of the resources educators said they use to teach Native subject matter. Um, more than 200 different books, websites, podcasts uh, and other things. Do you have any tips for educators looking to find good quality resources? So I want to first say those 225,
0: that is a definitely not an exhaustive list. Those were just the ones that were mentioned. And there are so many incredible resources out there. And folks often knee-jerk to Louise Erdrich or Sherman Alexie, you know, some of the ones that have broken through into the mainstream. And there are in- incredible amounts of resources. And so um, there are a couple couple of um, resources I would recommend. One is Dr. Debbie Reese has a website called American Indians and in Children's Literature. And Debbie reads just tons of books as they come out. And she offers recommendations as to why or why not to use a particular book. She's very, she does a a blog post for each one. Very clear about the reason she supports or doesn't support. and um, phenomenal resource. It's free, accessible to anyone. And again, that's American, Indian, uh, American Indians and children's literature. And first and foremost, everyone should follow Debbie. Uh, she's on all the socials and then of course, website. And then I brought um, a couple of other resources here today um, for folks who are watching the um, watching this video. One is the Indian Education for All, Evaluating American Indian Materials and Resources for the Classroom. This is an older publication, but it is from um, Montana. Um, As probably many folks know, Montana has Indian Education for All. In 1997, they they mandated that all students need to have Native content included in their classroom. And so um, the Office of Public Instruction, OPI, in Montana has created a lot of these different uh, resource guides, um, including some lessons. And then I brought this one. It's um, called A Broken Flute. This one contains some older books, uh, some picture books. I know that a lot of elementary school classrooms maybe don't have the newest resources, but this one as well, like Debbie, talk about the reasons why you should include or not include particular resources. So I do love um this one in particular i use a
1: lot fantastic i'll have to check that out do you have any tips for teachers um around like what to look for when they're evaluating um you know what they want to use in their classroom to make sure they're getting you know that that narrative and perspective uh, from an indigenous lens of course so
0: as um teachers often can't read every single book from cover to cover so some of the first things I would say is, look at the images in the book, right? Are they, do they, you know, set your hackles up? Are they, are they very stereotypical, you know, feathers and hair or look dirty or, you know, is there a totem pole in your Southwest story? You know, just some basic knowledge that everyone should have in order to look at that to see whether or not the the illustrations are accurate. Another big one to think about is, does it talk about Native folks in a contemporary fashion? So many of our resources available today talk about Native folks in past tense. And obviously, if it's a history resource, that's one thing. But if that history resource only refers to people as, you know, having been in the past, that's a problem. Um, other things, who's writing this, right? Whose lens is this from? So read a few pages in. Uh, look up the author. Is the author native? You know, where are they from? Is the illustrator native? Things like that. And I don't want folks to immediately say, oh, this wasn't written by a native person. I'm going to write it off. And one example of that is um, there is a book written by Debbie Dahl Edwardson. Uh, She's originally from the Minneapolis area. And she wrote a book called My Name is Not Easy. And she is um, a settler. And she said, um, you know, she has no native ancestry at all. But she wrote her husband's story, and he's a an Anupiak. So um, she worked in tandem with him. He didn't want to write his story, so they collaboratively worked together. And his, although his name is not on that, she says this is his story. And so there are exceptions for non-native writers who tell a really good story. But that would be my first, my first few recommendations for folks.
1: If you feel inspired by this episode and would like to learn more, I encourage you to read our new resource scan report, Restoring Our Place. In it, you'll find survey results from educators across Minnesota, as well as a list of resources educators use to teach Native subject matter, with color coding to indicate what resources are recommended or not. You can find it on our campaign website at understandnativemn.org. Now back to our episode. Um, After compiling all this research, uh, you and and the Report Advisory Committee developed a set of recommendations for how this situation could be improved. Can you uh, share with us some of the recommendations? You bet. So first and foremost, I really want to hear from
0: tribes, right? So I would love to sit down with all of the 11 tribal nations and say, hey, what content do you want? So how education is typically worked in Minnesota and many other states and provinces is the system itself is is determined. And then we interject Native content into that as whoever sees fit. And so my real question is, well, what do the tribes want taught? What? How do we authentically add information that the tribes want into, into learning environments? And it shouldn't be hey, here's the system, and let's plug it in as we see fit. I don't want it like that because Indigenous knowledge doesn't fit into mainstream systems. And so I would love to sit down with with all of the tribal communities and say, okay, what are the essential understandings that you would like every Minnesotan to know about your community? Is there scope and sequence? And when I say scope and sequence, I think about when... I used to teach in in Minneapolis public, you know, we would have wild ricing tools and folks would say, well, you know, I taught wild ricing last year, so I don't want to teach it again. And that's fine. You know, the process of, of gathering and harvesting and processing wild rice is one thing. But let's talk water quality. Let's talk wildlife management and how the animals play a role in, you know, in developing rice. Let's talk about genetically modified rice and the U of M trying to capture the wild rice genome. Like there's so many other things that we can build on that we can sort of spiral up that knowledge of what, what our, our, our students are learning and really deepen their understanding of it's not simply the rice, it's that relationship to everything that rice is connected to that's also part of the story. So I would love that. Um, that's always been my my first and foremost um, priority of this report is really to honor the narrative that the, that the tribes want another Another priority that we have is creating a repository of materials. You know we we've spent some time talking about curriculum and how to choose good curriculum, and that was the number one ask for educators and curriculum leaders. Give us embedded curriculum that we don't have to, you know, figure out if it's harmful or wrong, and then make it just fit into what we're already doing so we don't have to fumble along and try and, and fit it into our existing curriculum. So the report itself has six um, six recommendations, and there are several. Would you like me to go through all of them?
1: Yeah, why don't we just at least briefly mention uh, what the six are?
0: Okay. So again, the first one is to start off with uh, tribal involvement. We also want to have that repository. We want to create more authentic resources. That is a big priority. We want to have more uh, native-specific professional development. We had a number of uh, folks, about 37% of respondents, said that they've never received a native-specific professional development. And that's... That's a huge problem. That's significant. And so um, some folks had said that they had received equity training, you know, so maybe they've talked about Native folks once or twice in there, but it wasn't Native specific. So that's a problem. Uh, Another recommendation we have is to create an Indigenous Education for All MOOC or online course. So there was a similar one like that uh, done at the University of Alberta where people could sign up. It was an 11-week online course, and it was about Indigenous people of Canada. But I would love to see an online course that um, children could take with their their families. People who are interested in Native folks could just sign up and take it, and it would be online and accessible I would also love to see to build on that opportunities for place based learning around the state that students could sign up for and engage one on like face to face with Native community. And then the last one is a uh, language and culture licensure for Native folks. Now, I, I'm going to talk about Montana again. They have what's called a class seven license, and folks 18 years of age and older can apply through their tribe for a language and culture license. And it, um, one, it protects Native folks from, um, I guess, being exploited, you know, because a lot of Native folks do want to go in and teach, but they're often, you know, asked to do that for free, or um, they get dropped into situations that maybe aren't safe for them socially. And so I feel like a licensure would help prepare them for that. But as well, it promises them a living wage. So Montana, they pay, uh, I think it's $25 an hour for folks under this license. And as a public school advocate, I want to say, you know, this licensure isn't a way to undermine existing licensures. It's a way to protect Indigenous people and make sure that the best people are coming into, into classrooms. And it's certainly not an invitation to bring them in and then you know, have that teacher leave and go make copies or fill up their fill up their coffee, things like that. It would be an opportunity to bring Native folks in and have them be guest speakers, um, supplemental teachers, and um culture bearers that we so desperately need. That's a great model.
1: Um one of the, the findings or recommendations is around training and you just said 37% of, of respondents had never had any training. Is it lack of access? Is it there's not good training programs? Um, Do you have any insights on on the training aspect? So my sense is, so in Minneapolis Public,
0: we used to do a summer professional development, a two-day professional development for our community partners and teachers at Minneapolis Public Schools. So in my mind, oh, you know, there are great PD offerings available. And in this PD, we used to talk about pedagogy, talk about history, do an Indians 101 type workshop. Louise Madsen from the Division of Indian Work would do that to really introduce some of the foundational things. And then the second day, we would go on a sacred sites tour around the Twin Cities. But in addition to all of that, we had food. You know, we gathered, we had a round dance, we had a giveaway, we smudged. Like there was all these other things that we did that were outside of teaching per se. And so um, I come from, you know, preparing and developing this model. And so for me, I guess it kind of broke my heart a little bit to find out that so many folks aren't having access to, to professional development like I had in my mind. And so as I received things from teachers, they said, you know, we live in greater Minnesota. You know, there is no access. Like, I'm in a small community. If I want to find professional development, I need to typically go to the Twin Cities for that. And that costs money. That costs time. My district might not give me time off. Another concern was um, associate educators or teacher's aides. They said, well, when there is PD offered, typically it's given to licensed staff and we don't have the option to participate. And so, um, when I asked folks, "Well, what, what what types of PD have you have you partaken in?" and oftentimes, and this was surprising to me, oftentimes it is amazing community organizations that are doing it. So, Darlene Saint Clair does her Native Studies summer workshop for educators. Niswa does it every year—a five-day immersive opportunity for teachers. We have Dr. Annette Lee who does Native Skywatchers. We have the Minnesota Humanities Council who does the Bedote tour and learning in place. Uh, so we have these, these pockets of people who are doing really great things, but it's not necessarily fully supported by MDE or school districts. Or So it's, the onus is really on educators to find this, get the funding, get the time off, all of these things. And so there are all these continual roadblocks that are put in teacher's way to being successful in this. So that was also really surprising to me.
1: Um, Let's see, we got a little bit of time left here, uh, so uh, wrap it up a little bit, but um, one hope we have for this report is that it'll be something policymakers, stakeholders can reference uh, in the future as they're talking about education and curriculum. Um, How do you hope this report will be used?
0: You know, we've talked about it, how it is the first of its kind. You know, No one's ever done this in Minnesota. And when we stepped into this project, I guess we didn't really know what we would find, right? But we wanted it to be honest and we wanted it to provide insight into where we were at. And so um, I look at this as the foundation, right? We've, we've set the, the concrete pad down and now we get to build up from that. And so when we look at this, I want folks to look at at it as an opportunity for growth. You know, no shame, no blame. There are tons of places that we can work collaboratively together to make education better for all students in the state. And now we know. So many times in education, we're wringing our hands about, oh, gosh, this demographic isn't doing well, or, or why, you know, we've done all of this. And we have a laundry list of things that we've tried. And, you know, we just can't get that needle to move. This gives a really great opportunity for us to say, okay, here are the things that our folks in classrooms are seeing. Let's work on these items and see whether or not it moves the needle. And I think it will. It is a really well-rounded model, per se. Um, I always joke that uh, working in Native community, you know, it's not runs on a ladder. It's spokes on a wheel. We can't necessarily just do, oh, we're going to start with this and then we're going to move to this. It's really, all right, we're starting in the middle and we're just going to branch out in this starburst of all of these things that we're going to try to do at once, which isn't a typical model for folks. They want to do one thing and evaluate and see what the change is. And then we're going to move to this thing. That just doesn't necessarily work. Within the scope of how how Indigenous education should work, yeah,
1: and I think you know this report you just mentioned how uh, you know it's not all doom and gloom or it's not all negative. Uh, as you were doing this work, you did you know talk to people who uh, do feel supported uh, in their efforts to you know change the narrative in their classroom and who you know do see administrators wanting to do this. And as as we go through this campaign. Uh, we see tremendous support from Minnesotans um, to to include more uh, in the K through 12 system about Native Americans. You know, like ninety percent of Minnesotans Which support is a shocking that. Number. Yes. Shocking
0: number, yeah, absolute shocking numbers, super majorities in all demographics. And I think everyone needs to hear that, you know, and inherently, I believe we all want to do better. And when I look at this report. I want to say to folks, okay, now that we know, we know. So let's let's do it. Let's make it better for everyone. And that's really what I hope people take away from. First and foremost, read it. I think it's super fascinating. But also, um, let's collaborate. Let's see where this can take us. Yeah.
1: Can you share maybe a, a an inspiring uh, story or message uh, that you uh, found while you were conducting this research?
0: So. There were so many teachers that were just making stuff, and they were so excited. And so one particular instructor, uh, they taught um, 18-year-olds, and they used the Birchbark House to really compare the life of Omakias, the main character from Birchbark House, to their modern-day life. And I really loved that this instructor really took the book and personalized it. And the fact that it was high school students, I thought it was really fun and inventive for that instructor to do that. Another one um, has taken some uh, native culture and used it in comparison with uh, Hmong ways of knowing. And I thought that was brilliant as well. And so we have teachers who essentially are just finding things and developing things and creating these really brilliant lessons that engage their students. And they're just doing this on their own, and that was, you know, filled me with pride. You know, as a teacher, I'm like, gosh, look at these people go! They're they're so clever, and that was exciting for me. And I hope, um, as a as a process of this, we can also perhaps develop a cohort, a learning cohort of these amazing teachers, and we can collaborate and share resources and support them on their journey as they continue to grow and make things.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think it's important to, you know, keep in mind there is a lot of good work going on out there and uh it is fun to uncover that. Um but you know as we wrap up our conversation, could you just share a little bit about, you know, why why is this research important um and why should people especially educators take the time to to read it and So Again, I think, I think the report itself is fascinating.
0: Um, it's written in a way that's accessible for everyone to read. You can page through it, see what some of the things are. We didn't really dig into what's in the report. But, you know, I asked teachers, what are your, what are your gaps? You know, what, what standards are easiest to teach? What's most challenging? Um, if you had a wish list, what would be on it? So we, we dug into, really into the mindset of teachers. And I think folks should read it to really get an understanding of how teachers are thinking. And especially two years into this pandemic, we've put a lot on teachers. And I think it's fun to see these folks are the brightest, I think, you know, brightest light that we have here in Minnesota. Commitment to working with young people, commitment to teaching, you know. If anything, I would think Aside from healthcare, I think education is probably one of the hardest jobs that we've seen in the last two years. And despite all of that, we have folks who genuinely love teaching and love kids, all kids, and want to do want to do well for all of them. And that's really exciting to me. And I hope
1: that comes through the report as well. Yeah. Um, just for our listeners uh, who haven't had an opportunity to to read it what is there one or two things that you know you think people should should really know um out of the report what would be your highlights
0: so my highlights from there are um we have we have some great work coming up i think that the grant making process that you're doing is going to change the way education is in minnesota and i also think that it is good for especially lawmakers and administrators. There are verbatims in there directly from teachers and, you know, who are the survey respondents. Read them and see see what people say and get insight into how much people care about education, how much they feel unsupported, um, conversely, how they feel supported. And I think that's what I want people to take away from is this is an opportunity for us to move forward together. And despite whatever people take away out of that, I want them to to feel resilience, our resilience that despite all of the issues we've had historically in education systems, there are this incredible work happening that's supporting all all students in Minnesota.
1: Fantastic. Well, Odia, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, and for all your work on this report, I do think it's a wonderful resource, and I'm really excited to to share it with folks across Minnesota. Well, thank you so much, and as always, it's the honor is all mine. Thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota Podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.